The following audio is from City Rev Church. For more information about City Rev Church, visit us online at cityrev.org. This past uh, Christmas, Rebecca and I uh, gave this this toy right here to our youngest. Uh, she's two. Her name is Hope. And uh, we figured that this, it's a little like pizza making set, and we figured that this would be a hit with her. What we didn't realize is it became like the most popular gift for the entire family, okay, after that. The older kids got into it too, and, and basically what it is, is they give you this like wooden like pizza here, okay, and then they have this little, it's just like red felt, but it's the, the pizza sauce, and it's got like Velcro here, okay, and you put that on, and then you can make the pizza. There's also like little felt cheese that you put on top, okay? And you can put that on. And what Hope does and, and, uh, when she got this gift is she takes this little menu and she'll bring it to us. We'll be sitting on the couch and she'll come in. She'll say, you know, what do you want on your pizza? And she'll show it to us. And it's got these different toppings like, you know, pepperoni and uh, it's got peppers and mushrooms and olives, okay? And then she'll go back and, um, you know, she's two, so she does nothing that we just said, okay? <laughs> just makes the pizza however she wants, all right? And of course we love it, okay, because she's two. And then she'll put those things on there and, um, you know, all these different little toppings. And, and then there's like a little oven that you can put it in. It's got like the thing like at those like, what do you call these? I don't know. Is this a giant spatula or what? I don't know what this is. But they get this thing and you can put it in the oven and the knob and then it's got even like a little pizza box. And, um, and like the kids love it. In fact, they play with it so much. This is actually the first chance I've gotten to play with it, which is why this is an illustration here. I just needed my moment with the pizza set. But here's what I was thinking. When I was looking at like this set, um, it wasn't long after we got this that um, I went to pick up some pizza for our family and there's this little pizza restaurant. It's not far from our house. And like I walked in and I'm like, oh yeah, look, there's like the real like huge wooden spatula thing that they put it in the oven with and look at all those pizza boxes. And I, I saw all these people, you know, they're like covered with like flour and they're just throwing all these toppings on. And the thought that I had watching them was, man, running a pizza restaurant is incredibly hard work. Like they were, they had like the, you could just almost see it on their faces, like the heat of the oven, like this, there was like sweat on their face, okay, and there's, and, and you just know like those clothes probably smell like pizza forever, okay, there's nothing, just burn them at the end of each shift, there's nothing else you can do. And I was just looking like, man, this group, this team here, they are hustling, they are working hard to run a pizza restaurant, must be so, so hard. And when I looked back at like this, this little pizza restaurant toy that was such a hit in our house over the last uh, month or so, um, I realized there's this incredible link between how we play as kids and work. And I started looking around at the toys, and there are toys that, like, the kids play with for a little bit, and then they're bored. But I looked around at the toys that they, like, play with, like, a lot for a long time, and it seems like most of them are basically a child version of work. It's something they've seen an adult do, and they're doing. It's maybe like a kitchen set, or, or uh, half the time, like, uh, Scarlett comes back from school, and then she wants to be the teacher. And I'm like, haven't you had enough school already today? You're like, now we're in school, okay, and we're learning all this stuff. And, like, there's such an incredible link between play and work. Like, 
working for hours at an actual pizza restaurant seems like work, but working for hours at a make-believe pizza restaurant, man, was a blast. Like they were having so much fun. And I think there's something that that communicates to us, not really as much about play, but I think that communicates something to us about work. In fact, I wanna show you what the Bible has to say about what you do, your job, what you put your hours in, what you've, some of you, the career you're building or the career you're studying for in school. Like, and, and here's the thing. We look at what the Bible says about all kinds of stuff. Like we expect the Bible to say things about prayer, expect it to say things about God, say things about morals, okay? Say things about how we should live. You know, we may say, okay, I go to the Bible for that stuff. We know that the Bible says a lot about relationships. It says a lot about, actually says a lot about money. It says a lot about sexuality. It says a lot about just the nature of humanity, the nature of the world. It says a lot about that, but do you realize the Bible actually has a lot to say about your job, about what you will do most of your day tomorrow? It has a lot to say about that. And if you miss what the Bible says about your work, and honestly, this is often overlooked, but what the Bible says about your work is so profound that it may change everything about how you work and, and about your fruitfulness for the rest of your life. Some of you might be saying, well, look, I'm in college or I'm in school, I don't have a job yet, I'm, I'm working towards a job, or I just have like, I'm studying and I have a bad job so that I can finish school and get a good job. So, but this is an incredibly important time to lean in about what the Bible says about work because it applies to you right now. Others of you might say, yeah, that'd have been great 40 years ago, I'm retired. Like I could have, would have loved to hear that 40 years ago, but actually what the Bible says about work in general could be the difference between a wasted retirement or a fruitful retirement. I want you to hear what this says. If there's something, if there's anything the Bible says that's practical, you gotta say, you gotta hear what it says about your job. I want you to open with me to Genesis chapter one. Genesis chapter one. We're going right to the very, very beginning. Genesis one, chapter one, verse one. Let's look at what this says. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Now pause with me right there. Genesis opens up and we learn first and foremost one pivotal thing. God exists. First thing you need to know as a human being, there is a God and everything that is God created it. It's so practical. It starts here as an invitation to a human to say, okay, you might have a lot of questions about a lot of things, but you know that you exist and you look around and you see that there's other things that exist. And it says, okay, question number one, there is a God. And as you look around, all of this was made by God. He created the universe. He created the world. The first thing we learn about in, this, in the entire universe is that there is a God 
and that he created everything. Now, the Bible's going to say a lot of things about who God is through the rest of the books of the Bible. It communicates a lot that we need to know about who God is. But before we learn about his eternality, his holiness, his love, his compassion, before we learn about all of those things, which we will in in just vivid detail through the story of the Bible, the first thing we're told about God, he's a creative. He doesn't like things that are dull. There was something void and formless, but he's a creative. He wanted to create something that was good, that was beautiful. Thing we learn about God is he's a creator and he's a creative. As the story of Genesis 1 unfolds, God's creative work is presented as a work week. Day one, he creates. Day two, he creates these things. Day three, he creates. Day four, day five. Day six, he creates. Day seven, he rests. It's as if it's saying, here was God's work. He's a creator. Each day, he created, and it was good, and it was vibrant, and then he rested on the seventh day. God created, and he created within a work week. The final thing, the crescendo of all that he created was, at the, was on day six. Here's what it says. Let's jump down to verse 26. Genesis chapter one, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. He gets to the crescendo of all of his creation. He's he's made the land and then the sea and then the birds and then the animals and all the vegetation. He creates the, the lights in the sky. He creates the universe, the galaxies, the stars. The psalm says he's breathing them out of his mouth. He's speaking them into existence. And then he gets to the very end and he creates human beings. He says he creates them male and female. And it says three different times, three different ways. It says he created human beings in his image. Now, what does that mean in his image? Um, I mean, there's a lot of things about God we're told. Like, what does it mean? Well, let's break it down like this. Theologians break down all the attributes of God. And one way you can break them down is into these two categories. There are his communicable attributes and his incommunicable attributes. Now, most of you are saying, finally, we're talking about his incommunicable attributes. I've been, I woke up this morning saying, Lord, please, can we just hear more about his incommunicable attributes? Okay, I know that this has been burning on your heart. So here we are. Okay, communicable attributes and incommunicable attributes. The communicable attributes of God are the things that we share with him. The incommunicable attributes are the ways that God is completely separate and we're not like him at all. So for example, God does not change. He's unchanging. That's an incommunicable attribute because we always change. Like we're changing all the time. We change our minds, our bodies change. He's changing us. We change, he doesn't. God is independent. That is an incommunicable attribute because you and I are dependent. We're dependent on each other. 
We're dependent on friendships. We're dependent on family. We're dependent on society. But even if you're one of those people that could go off and live in the woods by yourself with no contact with any other human and could live off the land for the rest of your life, you're still dependent on God. He holds your body together. We are dependent. He's independent. So his independence is an incommunicable attribute. But then there's things that are the communicable attributes, the things that he has and we're like him. But inevitably, we we never have it to the full degree that he does. So, for example, power. We have some measure of power, but he's all-powerful. But we're like him in that we have power. Love. We love, but we don't love like he does. He loves perfectly. Those are examples. Justice, wrath. Those are things that we are like God, communicable. So when he says, okay, jump back to Genesis 1. When he says, I'm making humans in my image, in context to Genesis 1. If Genesis 1 is all that you had, because being made in God's image means a whole lot. It is a very, very rich con- concept. But right there at its most rudimentary form, right there, if all we had was Genesis 1, what is God like that he's making us in his image? All we know so far about God in Genesis 1 is that he's a creator. And he creates in a work week. And then he says, now I'm making men and women in my image. Think fundamentally what does that say about humans? Now, there's, again, there's a lot more in the fact that we're made in his image, but just think of that one fact. What does that mean about how we're made in his image? So here's what's happened next. Jump over, uh, scroll down in your Bible app or uh, flip a page over to Genesis chapter 2. We're going to jump down to verse 8. What happens next? Here's what happens. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed, and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to, what's the word there? To work it and keep it. Now, um, what chapter of Genesis are we in here? Do you guys know how that works? It's, what, what number was it? What was it? Two. Okay, good. All right, Genesis 2. Cooper City, we hope you got that a lot sooner than West Pines. Okay, this is the remedial group here. <laughs> you guys, you're like the top of the class. Okay, Genesis chapter 2. Um, how this works, Genesis 1, everything's made. Genesis 2, they're in the garden. Everything is fine still. It's not till Genesis 3 that there's a serpent and Adam and Eve are tempted and they eat the forbidden fruit and they sin against God and sin enters in the world and there's all these consequences. We're still in Genesis 2. Like this is still paradise. Everything's incredible. There's no sin. There's no brokenness. There's no difficulty. Everything is wonderful and he's in the garden and Adam has a job. When it says um, that God put Adam in the garden and eventually Eve in the garden with him, they're there working together. And when it says to work and to keep it, that word for work in the Hebrew means work, like labor, like tilling the ground, like cultivating the garden. The word keep it means to guard and to protect it, to watch over it. Adam had a job. 
Now, I mean, stay with me here for a second. There's no sin, everything's perfect, but Adam had a job. That communicates a lot about the centrality of how we're made in his image, to create. Specifically, what was his job? And man, at first glance, when we read over that, it can be like, okay, God made this perfect garden, and I mean, he had these trees pop up everywhere, okay? He had rows of, of roses, just how he wanted them. He had the topiaries shaped exactly how he wanted them, and he put Adam in there and said, okay, make sure this doesn't get messed up. I want you to make sure you weed the garden here, make sure the topiaries get shaped in the same way. Like when I come back here tomorrow and we walk through the garden, I wanna make sure it's exactly how I left it. Like you just protect what I did. But that's not what this is saying. The word work the garden, it like, again, it means working in the soil. It means cultivating. Remember, Adam and Eve are both made in the image of God. That means God's like, I'm a creator. I'm going to make micro creators. He wants them in the garden. He wants Adam to run to meet God because God walked in his presence with him. As they're walking through the garden, he wants Adam to be like, God, look what, look what we did. You know, we, we started with, with the, the roses over here, but we moved them over here. And then, you know, we put these two kind of roses together. and We've got a different kind of rose over here. And you, the, the topiaries were this way, but we did them this way. He wants to see that. He wants them to delight in the work of the garden. It's not a punishment it's not a punishment. It's part of his purpose. He's reflecting the image of God there in the garden. Now you say, that sounds wonderful and not very much like my nine to five job that I'm going to tomorrow. Okay. Well, why is that? This tells us why. Turn the page over again. Genesis chapter three. The serpent... <laughs> tempts Adam and Eve. They both eat the fruit, disobey God. They stand before God and there's consequences and there's a lot in here, but let me just show you one thing. What he says to Adam, verse 17, chapter three, verse 17. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain, you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, and uh, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Do you see one of the consequences of the fall? Work got hard, it got difficult. When they, leaved, when they left the garden and Adam goes to work in the ground again, it's not the same this time. The ground's resisting him. It's hard, hard work. Before, it was just the pure joy of creating, but now he's digging through tough soil and just beads of sweat just dripping down his face. And as he feels the sweat just dripping down into the dirt in front of him, he's like, oh yeah. 
And as he's, he's going and he's pulling back some weeds that have grown up in his hand, he gets pierced, a thorn just, just stabs him right there in his hands. And, he, and he's, he's got to stop and he's got to get healing to his hand and not use this hand as much anymore because it's got the thorns and thistles and, now, and wait for it to heal. Man, it is now hard work. And see, it's that, it's the difficulty, it's the thorns, it's the sweat of the brow. It's those things that we now associate with work, right? If someone says, oh man, that sounds like work. That means it's difficult. Um, I don't know if you've ever been to the uh, restaurant, The Melting Pot. Anyone ever been to The Melting Pot, the restaurant? Okay. That is a great restaurant, in my opinion, for dessert. <laughs> Dessert's incredible. I mean, go there for a dessert, okay? And if you work the melting pot, like, it's an awesome restaurant, okay? It's great for dessert because you sit there, you just dip things in chocolate and eat them. I mean, that's like awesome, okay? But I once, Rebecca and I once went there for a meal, okay? And I remember, like, this is awesome. I mean, it's great. Like, the chocolate fondue's great. We're going to get some of that, but let's, uh, what is the food? The food's going to be great, too. And the food did taste good. But the person came up, and we're like, we ordered what we, what we wanted, and then they bring, like, this, this pan, and it's got all this boiling oil or whatever it is in there, and then they bring us this plate, and it's got some, like, all kinds of raw meat. It's got raw chicken, raw beef, raw fish, okay, and then some vegetables, and, and I just slid the vegetables over to Rebecca's side, like, why do I need those, okay? And so, and um, the, the server's like, okay, now you got to listen very carefully, and I'm like, whoa, all right. And like, okay, the beef, you have to cook it for at least three minutes and 13 seconds or you could get botulism. The chicken, you have to cook for at least one minute, 47 seconds, you get salmonella poisoning. The fish, you have to cook this or you'll die if you eat that too raw. And all of a sudden I'm like, I need to like take notes, okay? Like I'm like stressed out. And so we start putting things in there and I'm like, you know, Rebecca, you know, you should try time this. Like I don't want to die, okay? <laughs> So she's timing the meat. I've got put in the chicken. Oh, I put in too many. That was halfway through. Was that beef or chicken? I don't know. And I was exhausted at the end. I'm like, wait a minute. I go out to eat so I don't have to do this, right? Like, I want you to cook it for me. That's what I'm here for. I want you to cook the food, okay? It was too much work is what it was, okay? And we left him. The dessert was great. The meal was too much work. We associate work with the hard stuff. We associate work with the difficulty of it. But read what it says in the Bible. That's not the essence of work. And you do a lot of work in your life. Know what the Bible says about work. If you know what the Bible says about work, it will transform the bulk of how you spend the hours of your life. Work is not first and foremost a labor. That is how sin has distorted work. Work is first and foremost a way to worship God. By the time we get to Genesis 3, we don't have anything yet about prayer. We don't have anything yet about singing. We don't have anything yet about reading the Bible because at this point, the Bible hadn't been recorded. This was just the beginning. All it was, was Adam and Eve in a garden, working 
in the image of God, in the presence of God, and worshiping him every single day and delighting in it. Man, when work is worship, you're recapturing the original delight that you were wired for. You say, well, how is, you know, how is work worship? Okay, a couple things that we have to, to peel away here. First of all, so important. Somewhere along the line in Christian history, we were told that some things are sacred and some things are secular. They're sacred things. They're like spiritual. They're like religious. They're God, the stuff that God cares about. And so there's this group of things that are sacred. So it's like stained glass windows, church buildings, certain songs, um, the Bible talking about God, like those things are sacred. And then there's just everyday life stuff that I guess God doesn't really care about. As long as we're doing it like, and we're not like mean about it, like as long as we're holy about it, like God doesn't really care. Like hanging curtains and doing the dishes and driving the kids to school and typing emails and producing budget reports and going in and out of meetings being in a meeting that seems like it's lasting forever. Like these things, the day-to-day -day stuff, pumping gas. Like there's sacred things over here, stained glass windows. Then there's secular things that God doesn't really care about and we just have to suffer through, like writing emails. According to what this just said, there's no such distinction. There's not sacred things and secular things. If you're a Christian, it's just sacred things. It's all sacred. If Adam, who maybe hadn't even been taught to sing, was first taught to sink his hands into the dirt and cultivate a garden and call that worship, anything that you're doing with your day tomorrow can be worship. That's what you're called to do. This is what it says in, in Colossians 3, 23. This is not just in the first few chapters of the Bible. Listen to this. Whatever you do, work heartily. That means work with your whole heart. Whatever you do, work with your whole heart as for the Lord and not for men. You want to know how you turn any activity into worship. It's that every time you do it, you're doing it as if the Lord was your boss. The Lord was the company owner. The Lord was the client. The Lord was your guest. The Lord was your customer. The Lord was your student. The Lord was, was the audience. The Lord was the person you're doing it for. You're like, Lord, this email I'm typing is like as if it's to you. I'm gonna write as if it was to you. This, this class that I'm teaching, this traffic stop that I'm overseeing, this, this fire I'm going to, this patient I'm tending to, um, whatever it is, th this budget I'm preparing, I'm preparing it as if it's for you. You might just recapture a delight in what you spend the most of your life doing, a delight that you were hardwired to have when it comes to work. See, work is not 
first and foremost a labor. Work is first and foremost worship. We're, we're talking in this series about um, being city changers. And last week we kicked it off with this first kind of umbrella concept. If we are called to be city changers, God is saying, I'm sending you into the city. City Rev, as part of the South Florida church, I'm sending you here into the city. Those of you who are part of our church but don't live in South Florida, you are called into your cities, whether it's in Michigan or Norway or Haiti or Puerto Rico, you are sent into those cities. That's, that's where you're sent into. We as a church, as the as followers of Christ, are sent into those cities. And here's what we learned last week. We're to be the presence of Christ because he said, I'm the incarnation, Jesus said, the incarnation of God, God in the flesh. And as God sent me, I'm sending you. He says, I'm sending you to have an incarnational presence. Wherever you go, you're to be the, my presence. You're, you're to be a good Samaritan. You're to find an opportunity to show love and be my presence wherever you go, whatever classroom, whatever office building, whatever restaurant, whatever station that you're at, wherever you go, whatever neighborhood, you're to go being the presence of Jesus Christ. It's an incarnational ministry. As you're doing that, you're bearing fruit. It's as um, Charles Spurgeon, a, a preacher from about 100 years ago, he put it like this. He put it so well. He said, every Christian is a missionary or an imposter. If you're a follower of Jesus, you are sent out to be a missionary. You're an incarnational presence. But here's what we're learning this week from this passage. He's calling you to worshipfully create. Every day, wake up in his image. Worshipfully create because that's how you were made. Whether you're writing a term paper or you're writing a, a budget report, writing an email, worshipfully create, whether you're creating a product or a new pitch, worshipfully create. In, in our world, we call this, we just call this innovation. He's saying, I'm calling you, I've made you in my image to be an innovator, to, to imagine new, better, healthier systems. He says, I'm sending you out. And listen, City Rev, listen to me. As you go out every day, you say, how are we as a church? How is the South Florida church going to transform South Florida? For starters, if every Christian goes out to be an incarnational presence where we are showing love every day, that's going to bear fruit and transform our city. But if every Christian woke up and went into their space, whether their neighborhood, their workplace, their school, wherever they went, worshipfully creating, innovating in that space as worship for God, imagine what it would do to our city. Think about this. Let's walk this out. Let's just start with if you actually believed that work was worship. How would that change how you operate and affect the branch you work in or the company you work in? How would you believing work is worship, how would that change things? How many times have you seen a person, whether Christian or not, that excuses their poor work performance because of factors that they can't control? <coughs> Excuse me. They say, oh man, look, I, I used to work hard, but oh, it's just the politics or the bureaucracy or the broken system. I'm just working for five o'clock. I mean, I'm just trying to get to the weekend. I mean, it's just so difficult. 
it's just so hard for me to, to do this. Like, why, why do I even try anymore? I mean, the boss, you know, he's, it's, well, it's nepotism. He's just going to raise up his own family members. Or it's, he's got his favorites. And so he's just, he's, I'm constantly overlooked. And so like, why do I even try? Why do I even work hard? And so how often do you see someone, Christian or not, that excuses poor work performance? There's no longer a spark to innovate and create because of factors they can't control. Boy, I hope that's not your surgeon. I hope that's not the judges that are making sure that this is a, a just place to live and raise a family. I hope that's not your children's school teachers. I, I hope that's not the person in the back of the ambulance the day that you're back there and you need them. I mean, think about it. What would happen if I go to work every single day and I say, look, the systems don't matter. I'm not doing it for me. I'm not, <laughs> excuse me, I'm not doing it for me. I'm not doing it for my boss. I'm not doing it for shareholders. I'm not doing it for the company owner. I'm doing it for the Lord. I'm driven to do this for the Lord. He sees me, and I delight to do this well for the Lord. And you recapture a passion to do it for the Lord, and it brings back delight. You don't care if the boss doesn't see it. You care to show it to the Lord. Think of how that would change work performance every single day, and if in every industry, every Christian who's sprinkled like granules of salt, their work performance is still vibrant and worshipfully creating and innovating every single day, how will that affect all the industries of South Florida? But maybe it's that Christians, we've forgotten that work is not first and foremost difficulty. Work is first and foremost worship. What if we believed that work was worship? Secondly, what if we believed that work was creatively innovating in his image and that God saw it and delighted in it and said it was sacred and holy? What if you believe that what you do, fashioning widgets on an assembly line in a factory every day, making calls in a call center, manning a toll booth, what if you believe that that work mattered to God, he saw it as your sacred worship to him, and he wanted you to operate with innovate, create, worshipful creativity or innovation right there in your space? What might happen? I don't know about you, but... I would love for there to be greater innovation in medicine. There's someone back there who's like an amen to that, okay? They're like, I tried this other weight loss pill and it didn't work. We need greater innovation in medicine, okay? What if there's greater innovation in, in medicine? I think we want greater innovation in education, right? Educators, don't you want to see greater innovation in that? Don't you, don't you law enforcement officers, don't you want to see greater innovation in tools as law enforcement officers to do your job even better? Don't we want to see greater innovation in technology, greater innovation across the board? Doesn't greater innovation, doesn't that cause our, our economy to thrive? Like, don't we want to see greater innovation? Doesn't that lift up the city? Imagine, city change happens if, if we are innovating every day. But imagine this, if you believed your creative innovation 
was sacred to God and holy to God, then here's what then you would believe. God is empowering you by the Holy Spirit to creatively innovate at your job tomorrow. That what you do tomorrow as you run a, a, lawn, a, a, a lawn maintenance company and you creatively innovate a fresh way to do it more efficiently, that that brings glory to God and the Holy Spirit inspired you to do that. As you're the guy that's just mowing lawns for the guy who owns the company. And as you figure out a creative, innovative way to do that, it brings glory to God. And if you believe that's sacred, you believe that the Holy Spirit has empowered you to do that sacred work as worship to God. Just that alone. I mean, just let's just, let's, if we ended the series here, church, and everyone went out in incarnational presence, showing love, and creatively, worshipfully innovating to the glory of God, you can already see how the city gets changed, right? But this is just the beginning. There's so many more ways he's calling you to be a city changer. But just for now, go to work tomorrow, go to school tomorrow, run your household tomorrow, homeschool your kids tomorrow, whatever it is that you have planned to do tomorrow. Maybe you're off and you're just doing household chores. Tomorrow, do it as an act, sacred, worshipful act to the Lord and watch him replace a very ancient and primal joy for the work before you. Now, some of you say, um, I hear what you say, but man, the problem for me is I just, to really do that, I'd have to go get a new job. I just don't have one of those jobs. I just, I need a new job. Has anyone ever heard the, the phrase, um, find something you love to do and you'll never work a day in your life? Anyone ever heard that phrase before? Like I've heard that, I've heard that associated with Mark Twain, Benjamin Franklin, uh, Confucius, someone associated that with Confucius. Like I've heard that phrase over and over and over and over again. And once again, it is an impulse of our society that's so close but gets it wrong. Here's the problem with, our, with, with, with the way our society, our society knows there's just something about work that we feel like we're supposed to really enjoy it. And we get these glimpses of it every now and then. And it's, when, it's like we get glimpses when one person's like, oh, I have to do you know, lawn, lawn work. And the other one's like, oh, I got to spend the entire day working on my garden. And we're like, we did the same thing, but you loved it and I hated it. Like we get glimpses of like, we know that we're supposed to delight in what we spend the majority of our day doing. And so what we do is this is a typical reflex of our culture. The problem must be the job. That's the same thing we do with romance and love and marriage, right? I, I know I'm supposed to have a, a, a vibrant marriage. The problem must be I'm not compatible with this person anymore. I fell out of love. It's the person. Maybe instead of jettisoning the person or jettisoning the job, maybe it's to actually have our minds transformed to the pattern of God's word. And what if he's saying, no, it's you being transformed and as you're transformed, you will delight in what I've given you right in front of you. It's not the job. Whatever job you have tomorrow was given to you by God. Go and delight in doing it 
as worship for him and watch how he'll empower you and use you. There was a monk in the middle of the um, 17th century, so it's like 1650s to the, it's about 1700. And he's now known as, as Brother Lawrence. And he had a regular job, but just could not handle like the world. And he was just so wanted to seek God that he pulled himself out of his work and went and joined a monastery. And he's like, that way I can just worship God and be in God's presence all the time and I don't have to deal with like the difficulties of work. And so he gets to the monastery, he like surrenders all of his things and he makes a vow and then they say, okay, great, glad you're here. Um, your job is to go work in the kitchen. He's like, are you serious? Like I could have done that with that before I surrendered all my stuff. Like really, that's what I'm doing? And so he goes into the kitchen and he, he has kitchen duty and he hates it. And he can't wait to just be done with it and go pray. That's where he came. He came to be with God and pray. And he just keeps doing the kitchen duty year after year after year after year. He has kitchen duty. But that's what God used to teach him. And the thought hits him one day, wait, why can't I stay in God's presence and worship him having kitchen duty? And so he started practicing every day, doing dishes, making food, doing more dishes, making more food, day after day after day. And slowly, his mind was set on God all day. Every dish was a worship moment to God. Every moment, every conversation was an outflow of prayer. And this is, uh, this is what he says. The time of business does not with me differ from the time of prayer. And in the noise and clatter of my kitchen, while several persons are at the same time calling for different things, I possess God in as great tranquility as if I were upon my knees at the blessed sacrament. He says, uh, yeah, I spend my alone time with God. I set that side a time away and I just stay in that moment and everything I do is a sacred act before God. Do you know how long he had kitchen duty? About 40 years. And they say he was the most, one of the most peaceful, contented, joyous Christians. People came from all over to learn how to stay in God's presence no matter what they were called to do. That's what you're called to do. Christian, when you get up tomorrow, you're just playing. You're playing it, but it's, it's worship to him. You're finding delight in everything that you do. That's part of the outflow of the work he did on your behalf. What did he do? One night, he knew his time had come, and he went to a garden to pray. And he's bent over in the garden, and sweat beads on his brow came out. So great was the labor that he was about to work for you that the sweats were like drops of blood dripping down from his forehead. And as if in a poetic 
symmetry that they could not have possibly imagined but could only have been orchestrated by God when they arrested him. They twisted thorns and pressed it down on his brow. He was absorbing all the true work of being restored to the presence of God in the garden. He absorbed all of that. And now he says, now just go live in it every day. Can we just take a quiet moment before the Lord, would you bow your head and close your eyes? I wanna encourage some of you today, commit what you do before the Lord, whatever it is that your job is, you just quietly commit that to him and just say, God, I wanna be different. Silently in your heart, just draw that line in the sand. Tomorrow I will worship you all day with what I do. You see it. I'm not alone. It's not wasted. So I'm gonna live in your image. Give me the strength and empowerment to do it. Some of you need to embrace today the work that Jesus did on your behalf. You don't have to claw and climb your way back to God. He did all of that labor for you on the cross. He's restored you to the Father by dying on the cross, paying for your sins, and being resurrected in a garden. He's already done all the work for you. Just receive salvation and forgiveness of sins today. You're not receiving religion. You're not re receiving some great list of do's and don'ts to hopefully make it to heaven. You are simply receiving the work Jesus did to save you. And if that's you, I want to lead you in this simple prayer. Just silently in your heart say, Jesus, thank you for saving me. I receive your forgiveness, God. I receive your salvation. And I make you, Jesus, I make you my king. I will follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, if that was your prayer just then, here's what I want you to do. If you're watching on, online, grab your cell phone, go to cityrev.org faith. We wanna mail you a Bible. So if you fill that, it's gonna ask you a couple questions. If you fill that out, we will put a Bible in the mail to you this week. If you're here, go by guest services. We have a Bible for you. If you can't make it by guest services in the front lobby there, you can fill out that Get Connected card, say you put your faith in Jesus, or you can go to cityrev.org faith. We wanna put a Bible in your hands and let you know what the next steps are on this journey. Church, we're gonna close in prayer and uh, close in a song. And this, is, this song is a prayer effectively to God. It's an opportunity for us to say, God, whatever you call us to do, we're available for that work in our lives. Let's make this our prayer to God. Would you stand with me as we close? Thanks for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at cityrev.org. If you would like to speak to somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, you can email us at podcast at cityrev.org.